welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. Really excited today to dig into the topic of epigenetics with a leading pioneer in the field, Dr. Ben Lynch. In this episode, Dr. Ben shares his health journey and how uncovering key genetic SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, or blips in our DNA, dramatically improved his health and ultimately his career pursuit into the field of epigenetics. Dr. Ben unpacks here everything to do with the MTHFR gene and how it impacts the function of folate in your body, highlighting the really important and key effects on your health. He discusses the chemical differences and market different physiological effects of folic acid versus dietary folate. He also touches on different types of supplemental folate between capsules and lozenges, and most importantly talks about the many shortcomings of genetic testing for SNPs, how to spot bad test results, and how to properly interpret your results so you don't come home with 10 bottles of supplements. Fantastic insights here from Dr. Ben. If you're someone who suffered from persistent fatigue, joint pain, insomnia, unexplained rashes, or perhaps have clients or friends who have, be sure to take some notes here. Check out Dr. Ben's great work on his website. Uh, there is a lot of epigenetic jargon here, so make sure you, you go through that. If you've had genetic tests done, his strategy and service is fantastic for really, again, making sense of those test results. As always, you can check out my layups and performance tips at drbubs.com forward slash podcast and enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. Ben Lynch, MD. He received his degree in cell and molecular biology from the University of Washington and his doctorate in naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University. His passion for identifying the cause of disease directed him towards nutrigenomics and methylation dysfunction. Currently, he researches, writes, and presents worldwide on the topic of MTHFR, methylation defects and genetic control, and is the author of the new book, Dirty Genes. Dr. Lynch also founded and directs SeekingHealth.org, an educational institute providing specialized training for both health professionals and consumers. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Awesome. Glad to be here, Mark. Thanks for the invite. Well, listen, can we kick things off by telling folks a little bit more about how you became a real leader and pioneer in the world of epigenetics? Where did that uh, passion come from? I like solving problems. Uh, if there's a problem to be solved, I've always gravitated figuring it out. And it all started with when I watched a, a video on the tale of two mice that talked about how they were genetically susceptible to various diseases, and yet they didn't get them because they were provided methylated nutrients. And yet the genetically identical uh, mice that didn't get those methylated nutrients went on to have diseases. And I was like, wow, really? That's that's pretty Incredible. phenomenal. Yeah, and so I was like, well, what's what's that have to do with what is methylation and all that? And I didn't really know. I mean, I knew it was folate and B12 and homocysteine. I knew the basics. And then it was probably a year or two later that it was uh, maybe even longer where I was doing some research on, empty, uh, on uh, bipolar disease. And this acronym popped up in National Library of Medicine, PubMed, and it, it's talking about how people with bipolar struggle with folate metabolism and empty Jafar. It's like, well, what the heck is empty Jafar? I had no idea. So I put, a, I put empty Jafar back into the PubMed search, and all these 
hits came back about MTHFR cardiovascular disease, MTHFR preeclampsia, MTHFR infertility, MTHFR breast cancer, MTHFR cardiovascular disease. And I was like, oh my God, how did I not learn about this? And what I still didn't know what it was. I just knew what it was associated with. Yeah. And then, and then I realized it's like, wow, I thought folic acid was was fine, but apparently it's not. So that's kind of I put myself in a big rabbit hole and I have been enjoying the journey ever since. Yeah, it's definitely a huge rabbit hole, and you do such a great job of making sense of all this. So maybe we can start out with um, talking about folic acid, because most people think of folic acid as a healthy vitamin, something that's you know important in pregnancy and you know protecting perhaps against birth defects. So can you speak to perhaps the initial uses of folic acid in the 1980s, bring it into the food supply, and then you know what we know about it today? Yeah, great. It's you know. Back in the day, our ancestors would go around and they would eat leafy green vegetables and they would eat liver from the foods that, you know, the, from the animals that they uh, hunted and got and prepared. So naturally, their folate was provided for. And the term folate, if you think about it, folate, foliage, it's the same thing. So foliage is green, folate is found in leafy green veggies. And so they were naturally going around and getting it. And that was all fine until the industrialized uh, folks came around and said, you know what, you know, we're, we're throwing bread on the shelves and, you know, cause grains, you know, be, were originally plants at first before they became grains and they started putting fresh breads on the shelves and they would sell out and say, well, how do we, how do we make this better? So then they've produced a bunch of bread, but then they wouldn't sell it and they'd have to throw it all away because it, it wasn't shelf-stable. So they said, okay, well, they researched into this, and they decided to strip all the nutrition on the basically the protein and all the good stuff off the grain, and it was left with a flour. It was basically dead material, and they used and created breads with that. And lo and behold, that stuff could sit on the shelves for a lot longer, and so off it went. And everything was great. Progress, right? Were make, yeah, <laughs> progress. Yeah, success. And later, it's like, wow, there's a lot of birth defects going on. There's a lot of issues going on, you know, cardiovascular, or congenital heart defects and congenital birth defects and preeclampsia and miscarriages and infertility. And I'm like, what the heck? And neural tube defects. And then they traced it back to it's like, gosh, you know what? This flower is nutritional garbage. There's nothing in it. So the solution wasn't, oh, God, we did a bad thing. We'll go back to whole grains. And, you know, folks, you just have to buy the bread when you need to buy the bread and we won't produce as much. No, they synthesized a nutrient which looks close to natural folate, but it's very, very importantly different. And uh, the difference is substantial. And that folic acid does help some people. So they synthesized a synthetic type of folate, threw it in the bread, Neural tube defects did go down. Infertility did go down. All these things went down, but only in select populations, not all of them. Some people, not all of them. It didn't fix the problem. And nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about that, wow, you know, they introduced folic acid and no one's getting neural tube defects anymore. And no one's getting these issues anymore, despite taking folic acid. And to me, that deserved a further looking into because again i like solving problems and for folks listening in kind of that difference between folic acid and, and dietary folate uh can you 
really hammer that home for folks? Yeah, great point. So folic acid that's composed of three components, and I don't remember what they are. Um, it's like terylglutamic acid and glutamate and something else. And But what's missing from folic acid is a methyl group. What's missing from folic acid is a methyl group. And to put that, fo- that methyl group onto folic acid requires multiple steps. In fact, I'm looking at a pathway here on my nerdy poster that I drew out. And then there's one, two, three, four, five, six enzymes. And enzymes are produced from genes. There's six enzymes that are required to transform synthetic folic acid into the body's number one primary form of folate, which is called methyl folate. So folic acid isn't methylated. The body's primary form of folate is methyl folate. To put that methyl group onto folic acid requires seven different enzymes. And a lot of those are happening to be uh, difficult uh, to put that methyl group on there because they're not working quite right because of genetic variations from our ancestors for various reasons. So, yeah, maybe this is a great time to jump in and you did present, I'll actually include it in the show notes here, that wonderful um, biochemical pathway so we can get a sense of those enzymes. Um, but perhaps maybe a great time to talk about SNPs and, and what some of those defects are in the in those pathways that people might have. Yeah. So, you know, when I when I first looked into SNPs, like M. Chavarro is my first one, I, and you read the research about how it's associated with all these conditions, you know, negative conditions, right? Preeclampsia, infertility, um, you know, breast cancer. You, you immediately associate MTHFR SNPs as bad. And first of all, we have to define a SNP. And a SNP is genes are made up of um, long, long uh, amounts of basically DNA bases, right? So there's these these bases of amino acids and, you know, uh, thymine, adenine, guanosine, so on, cytosine, and they're, they're linked together. And as they're linked together in various organized fashion, they produce the gene. And so some genes can be thousands of these long, some of them can be tens of thousands long. And once, when one of those base changes are different, that's called a SNP, a single, yeah, single nucleotide polymorphism. So those, those bases, those amino acid bases are called nucleotides. And so when one of them switch, it can alter the function. Now, we have to keep in mind that these SNPs can be deleterious, deleterious, I'm just going to say bad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's a hard word for me to say. So they can just not be beneficial to us at, at first look, right? We, we, they've altered their function. They've either sped it up or slowed it down. And so a SNP is different than, well, let me back up for a second. Genes can be very, very common in the population, a certain gene like MTHFR. The majority of the people have a, a MTHFR gene that has a cytosine nucleotide. However, 50% of Italians and Mexicans have, and the Chinese, have that cytosine nucleotide switched to a thymine. And that thymine is where that problem happens, that shift. 
So it's just that one nucleotide that shifted from a cytosine to a thymidine, and that's causing all this hoopla about MTHFR. And yeah, I got on the bandwagon, and uh, you know, it's that what it did is it altered its function by about thirty percent or so. It and it slowed it down. It didn't make as much methylfolate, and so that's what SNPs can do. They alter the speeds of genes. Gotcha. So like someone. Uh taking or not taking their coffee in the morning, so to speak. Mm-hmm. In terms of that speed idea of the genes working quickly. Yeah, yeah or taking too much coffee. So, you know, the MTGFR gene, for example, works too slowly if one has a MTGFR SNP, and yet there's other genes like superoxide dismutase, which is very, very important for eliminating superoxide, which is a very potent free radical. This gene is, is a SNP that makes it really fast. So there's, there's, depends on the, the variation. Gotcha. Now, what are some of the implications? Because I know in the initial stages, it was worrying about um, the types of SNPs that we had. And, you know, you mentioned in your talk, obviously at AHS and all your work around, you know, this idea of good and bad and being sort of over too, oversimplistic. Um, but what are some potential perhaps symptoms or issues that might come up if someone has, you know, too slow or too quick in terms of the MTHFR? Well, it's if if someone's MTGFR gene is working slowly, well, their enzyme because their MTGFR gene produces a enzyme that isn't very fast, and so compared to the preschools do not have the MTGFR SNP, and so if someone has an MTGFR SNP, their ability to produce methylfolate goes down, right? But yet they still can produce it. They still have a Say, if they have one SNP, they inherited, say, one from their dad, one SNP from their dad of MTGFR, and from their mother, they inherited a good MTGFR. There's no SNP present. So one, one variant or one SNP can slow their ability to produce methylfolate down by about 20 to 40%. <clears throat> and if you get <clears throat> one copy from each of your parents, then you can get two SNPs, and you can slow your, your MTGFR uh, function down by anywhere from 40% down to about 75%. So it's very significant, but you still have anywhere from 40% left to 25% left capacity. So that means if you have a battery and you have a battery and you want to run, say, a, a, a flashlight outside, you have only 25% time for that battery before it runs out. You can still get stuff done. It's just going to run out quicker and you need to recharge it faster. If you have a solar powered battery, then it, you can stay out there longer. Now, someone who has a regular MTGFR, they've got a full battery and they can go out and do things longer. And now I'm, why I said all that is because MTGFR produces methylfolate and methylfolate does a, it supports your methylation system and methylation goes and produces a bunch of very, very important components in your body, like cell membranes and so on. So if the MTGFR gene isn't working very proper, very well, and it's slowly, uh, it's slow, then you, your ability to make the body's number one form of folate is reduced. However, the beautiful thing is, is you can get your methylfolate from your leafy green vegetables, and you can get it from liver. So even if you have an MTGFR SNP, you, you're still getting it from your diet, especially if you're eating an ancestral one. 
that becomes important then to ensure, yeah, the solid nutritional foundation there of getting the leafy greens in, getting some of the organ meats to meet those requirements, even if you do have SNPs, as you mentioned. Now, what if somebody is, say, having the standard American diet, not eating a lot of leafy greens or organ meats? You know, what are some potential um, issues that would arise from having, a, you know, some of these SNPs for MTHFR? Well, you would be like what happened to me. Um, I've got MTHFR. I have two uh, significant SNPs. My MTHFR enzymatic function is reduced by 75%. I have only 25% uh, functioning, basically. And I did not like salad. I was eating the typical carb, high-protein diet. Uh, I was an athlete. I was competing hard. And I would get exhausted quickly. I could not tolerate uh, alcohol, really, at all. And uh, I had high blood pressure already when I was a older teenager. So when I was 19 years old, my blood pressure was already 150 over about 90. I almost didn't make the rowing team. Um, and they said, wow, that's really high. Why is your blood pressure so high? I'm I wasn't sure. nervous. And, and I was pretty fit already. And it was alarming to me as a 19-year-old to have a blood pressure of 150 over 90. So it just shows you that my environment, you know, that I, I was also was raised on a horse ranch where there was a bunch of chemicals sprayed around. So you know, I sprayed Roundup like it was water, and there was crop dusters all over uh, flying over our homes too to spray the neighboring fields of a few hundred acres of mint or potatoes or what have you. Gotcha. And so I was... I was a living 19-year-old already with high, high blood pressure, uh, very high uh, post-workout uh, fatigue and soreness. Uh, it took me a long time to recover, uh, way longer than my other teammates did. Uh, I could not gain muscle. No matter how much I ate, uh, and it wasn't leafy greens or organ meats, it was protein and carbs, didn't matter how much I ate, I could not bulk up. Um, is because methylation, which is what your MTHFR gene supports, helps to produce creatine. So I, I was not able to make sufficient creatine. So hypertension... Pretty darn important uh, for athletic performance. Yeah, exactly. And I wish I knew this then. Um, so my muscle mass was down. I had hypertension. I was fatigued. Uh, those are very common ones. Uh, my cognition, my ability to think and cont you know contemplate and reason and problem solve was also reduced. I was not doing as well in school as I should have, and I just I slept a lot, and my morning fatigue was really high. So it was it was a problem. I, I was embarrassed actually, and I didn't understand why I was so tired. And uh, this is how a lot of people feel when they have it, and then they also have infertility. Um, which is actually good when you're a male college student. <laughs> um, and then uh, you, uh, you know, and when you are pregnant, you run the risk of having miscarriages or, or problems with your pregnancy like preeclampsia, hypertension, and so on. So it's, it's a very serious deal. Absolutely. And can you speak to people who do need perhaps more support, you know, the different forms of supplementation and how you know, looking for the different forms of folate would be, you know, the most obviously beneficial for them? Yeah. So for example, I, I love supplementation. I mean, I own a supplement company, but I, I still really want people to understand how genes work and what, why they're doing what they're doing. And the, the, the basic premise that we have to think about first prior to supplementing is to understand the supplement means to add or enhance. 
And a supplement's job is to add or enhance our physiology and our biochemistry. And you boil that down even further, supplement's job is to support our genetics, right? I mean, think of it as a nutshell. So if you are working your genes hard, if you are, you know, if you're working on your business and you're, you're just grinding at it, then you're working your genes hard. If you're on vacation, if you're just going for walks instead of preparing for triathlons or, or long bike races or trying to bulk up, then you probably don't need so much support. Your genes aren't working as hard. So every day I want people evaluating how hard are my genes working? And if they're working hard, then diet alone and sleep alone might not be sufficient. You might need additional supplementation. Where people get into trouble is, is if they go on vacation or they're not working very hard that particular day and they supplement with various types of folate, like methylfolate, for example, then they get anxious and irritable. And then they say, oh, this is bad for me. It's like, no, you didn't need it. You, you had enough. Your, your MTGFR gene didn't need to go to work. Now, if you drank a bunch of alcohol and you partied hard, then, yeah, you need more methylfolate for that. So understand that genes do work. And how hard you're working them dictates how much supplementation that you need beyond your natural, healthy lifestyle, diet, and your environment. And so that's that's what I like to say uh, first about that. And when you, and your specific question, Mark, was, you know, what are the different types of folate out there? Yep. Yeah. So sometimes my answers get long-winded because I have I have the very important preface I have to to No, state. I mean that, that's a great point. I think. A lot of people don't think about dosing and things like that when they think of supplements. They often just think of solutions as a quick fix or whatnot. So I think that's a great, great emphasis there. Yeah. You know, a lot of people too is they, you'll have a a stash of supplements in your cabinet. And when you get that stash of supplements, you learn that this one's good. You learn that that one's good and that one's good. And pretty much you, pretty soon you got 10 to 15 supplements on your counter and you take them every day because they're all good. And yet your genes now are getting all this massive support from your supplements and they're like dude stop already i don't need all this stuff it's like insulin resistance you know you you don't you've already got enough fuel in your cells stop giving me more supplementation so now let's say you you had some alcohol let's say you are lifting weights so there's different types of folate there's there's three main ones that are commercially available there's folic acid which you should never ever use. And that's extremely controversial. And you will hear it from many, many experts out there that will say that I'm wrong. And you'll hear from me that's telling them they're wrong. So you're going to have to just kind of pick which camp you're in and go from there. So I'll I'll preface with that. And I'll also say that our ancestors had no access to folic acid at all. So the our ancestors from hundreds of thousands plus years ago had no access to folic acid, period, ever. Yeah, it's at 99.9999% of our time here on the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we made it this far without folic acid. So I think we're, we're doing okay if we don't supplement with folic acid. So folic acid is, is one of three types. You just don't take it. The second type is methylfolate, the one that we've been talking about. And... There's another one called folinic acid. You're like, well, what's that? I, I rarely hear of folinic acid. So there's there's a drug called leucovorin, and that's the drug name for folinic acid. 
and you can spend more money if you want to get leucovorin and get all the fillers and food coloring and dyes and what have you with leucovorin. Or you could just buy a very inexpensive, like seven, eight, nine, ten dollar bottle of folinic acid um, over the counter. And they're typically available in 800 micrograms. The RDA dose is 400 micrograms of folate a day, which I think is uh, kind of borderline low. But again, it depends on what you're doing, if you're drinking or exercising or so on. But let's talk about first what these types of folates do, shall we? Because they do different things. Absolutely. So methylfolate supports methylation. So if you have high homocysteine, or you want to make more creatine because you're trying to bulk up, or your cell membranes, you know, you order a lab test and you find out that your lipid peroxides are high, or your, your DNA addicts are high, your oxidative stress is high, methylfolate is what you want to be tag teaming with. You want it, you want that on your in your corner. So homocysteine elevated, methylfolate. You want to support methylation, you want methylfolate. If you're trying to, uh, you know, like uh, again, bulk up, exercise performance, if you're drinking alcohol, methylfolate is what you want. Uh, if you're exposed to laughing gas, nitrous oxide, that really, nitrous oxide wrecks your vitamin B12. It destroys your vitamin B12. It oxidizes it. Nobody talks about oxidized B12, but that's what happens. And when your B12 gets damaged, your methylation gets screwed up. So if you're ever using laughing gas and people are now using it as a drug, they're getting access to it and using it for fun. It's like mm -hmm. uh, smelling paint, you know, yep. uh, the things that people do. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. So methylfolate is good for that too. Now, folinic acid is fantastic when you're on medications like methotrexate or 5-FU, um, and the reason is because methotrexate blocks the gene which processes folic acid. Most doctors will prescribe folic acid to people who are taking methotrexate. And that's the stupidest thing in the world. It's like driving a car with two feet, one on the gas and one on the brake. It's the same thing. So you're, they're inhibiting this one particular gene. It's called DHFR for those people who want to dig into it. Doesn't matter though. Methyltrexate inhibits this one gene, so it can't do work. And if it can't do work, then these people get platelet uh, deficient. So they start having uh, bleeding problems. Their white blood cells go down. They, they can't fight infections. Their hair falls out. Um, they become anemic. So all these things happen, and it's because they're becoming deficient in folate. The problem is doctors say, here's folic acid. But the methotrexate is blocking that gene's ability to process the folic acid. So it's pretty dumb. So you use folinic acid. So if you're not on methotrexate, you can think back, well, he just said that if my hair is falling out, yeah. So if, you're, if your hair isn't growing very well, if your hair is falling out, if you're anemic, if your white blood cells are low, you're not able to fight infections, if uh, your platelets uh, are not forming and you're bleeding, uh, you know, too much without it stopping. That's where folinic acid comes into play. Also, if you get sunburn, sunburn is also um, what you want because it's it's DNA repair. And if you want more want more energy, folinic acid is useful for that too. If you want more neurotransmitters, you want also folinic acid. So folinic acid is is really really lost 
in the limelight of methylfolate. And I'm partially to blame for that because I didn't realize how important flinic acid was. And methylfolate can turn into flinic acid, but again, it requires a lot of multiple steps for that to happen. And to give you an example of how this works was I had a, a doctor uh, email me and they said, look, you know, Ben, I hear you. I'm not going to use folic acid ever, but I got this patient on chemo and their hair's falling out. I gave a methylfolate and their hair's not coming back. So what do I do? Do I give them folic acid? And I was like, no, you give them folinic acid. And I said, they said, well, why? I said, well, because hair's protein and hair requires DNA. Folinic acid supports DNA-based synthesis and the methylfolate isn't working for them because their methylation cycle is all damaged because of low glutathione and heavy metals from the chemo. So the methylfolate's stuck. It can't get used to come around and support them. So you have to give folinic acid directly. And here I was, this is the first email I ever got. Nice. And I was, I, was this, I was just following the principles, right, that I learned from the biochemistry books and my pathways that I drew. And she emailed me a month later. She goes, it worked. I was like, oh, thank God. Fantastic. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's flinic acid's fantastic too. And if we talk delivery methods, you know, there's capsules, lozenges, uh, things, you know, slow release versus liposomes. Can you speak to that in terms of um, scenarios where one might be better over the other? Yeah, great, great point. Thanks for bringing that up. So let's start with the most commonly uh, seen over the counter, and that's tablets. So tablets uh, are very easy and very inexpensive to make for supplement companies. And I don't know if you've ever been into a supplement manufacturer. I've been to many of them. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like jackhammers going off. It's very, very loud. And what they're doing is they're, they're, they have these basically like jackhammers compressing the nutrients really hard and pounding them into tablets. And it's they're super hard. I mean, we all hold tablets. And then we swallow them, and we expect our stomach acid to dissolve them. Some supplement companies will evaluate, evaluate the dissolution properties of a tablet. Other ones don't. And many times what happens is that tablet goes all the way through the entire digestive system and into the toilet, you know, the same yep. as it went through. So tablets are out. And the only time I like tablets is if, one, they're chewable, Two, their sustained release or extended release. Those are the only two times. Gotcha. And if you're taking taking in acids, uh, you probably don't want the extended or sustained release because they'll have <laughs> they won't dissolve on you. Um, the next one would be a capsule uh, or a gel cap. You're not going to find folate typically in gel caps. You'll find them in capsules. Capsules are great. Um, just look at the other ingredients and make sure they don't have a bunch of other garbage in there, like food coloring or propyl parabens or um, and so on. I don't like using magnesium stearate either in capsules. It's, uh, it's very fatty and it, again, it's, it's okay, but it's not ideal. Um, I much rather use, you know, say things like, uh, leucine or other amino acids that dissolve readily. Um, the reason they put magnesium stearate in capsules is to, so the folate will get into the capsule well and they can close it up. Um, the other one is a, is a chewable. Chewables are great. Um, as again, as long as they're clean, uh, without a bunch of garbage, um, titanium, di titanium dioxide, I'm not a fan of, 
Uh, lozenges can be really, really good, especially for those who are sensitive uh, or have digestive issues or are taking antacids or who really want to dial in their dose um, or if it's a very powerful nutrient. So I like lozenges of methylfolate and folinic acid because these are very, very powerful nutrients. Uh, so you'll feel the effect literally within minutes. So if you put the lozenge in your mouth, under your tongue or not, and you just let it dissolve. But before you do that, you pay attention. It's like, okay, how am I feeling? How's my head feeling? How's my vision? And how's my clarity of thought? Seriously, you, you run those questions through your head, then you put the lozenge in your mouth of folinic acid or methylfolate or methylcobalamin or a trio of, of thereof. Mm-hmm. And then you reevaluate after a few minutes and you're like, wow, you know, my vision is actually much clearer. My head is not as heavy, typically the frontal area and the, the uh, vertex of your head, the top part of your head also will, will lighten up really quickly. And then you'll sit there and it's like, wow, this is actually really cool. And then you'll say, yeah, my thinking is really fast. It's really crisp right now. And that tablet's only, say, 25% or that, that lozenge is only 25% dissolved. Now, 10 minutes go by and you're all excited and this is sweet. Now, now you're starting to get just a tinge of anxiety or a tinge of headache. That's when you take the lozenge out. Because okay. now you've, you've gone from foggy to wired, right? So you, you, it's like a few sips of coffee, you're good. But if you have three cups of coffee, you're not good. So please great, great way to test drive things then versus uh, having a full capsule, obviously, and not being able to then control uh, the dosage. Exactly. So because once you swallow a capsule, it's done. And you're, you're just kind of thinking, oh, I don't know if that's a good thing for me or not. So I love lozenges to help test or regulate the dosage. And that's really good for people. And then the other one is liposomal. And liposomal is important for people who have receptor based problems or transport problems and a lot of us have that and i'm the more i learn about transport and receptors for moving nutrients in and out of the cell the more i realize how significant this is and we think that when we swallow a nutrient or we eat food we're good you know the body will take care of it and it does sometimes all the time no and especially if you're struggling with chronic disease or you're, you're trying to get the ultimate performance or the ultimate outcome, liposomes are needed because they will help deliver that nutrient, whatever is inside the liposome, directly into the cell without need for receptors, without needs for transport proteins. And that's beautiful because there are transport proteins that are produced by genes. And yes, genes here are also a problematic. There's a folate transport gene which is very reduced in function down upwards of about 70% uh, can be reduced. Uh, and two of my sons have this. And so I used the lozenges for folinic acid for him because that does seem to be okay for him. Um, on his really off days, I um, and maybe he's, he has dairy because he can get dairy antibodies and the dairy antibodies will bind to the receptors thereby blocking the folate from getting to the cell because the dairy antibody will block to the receptor. I'm getting heavy here. Oh, the dairy antibodies, yeah, the dairy antibodies will bind to the receptor, but folate is supposed to bind to that receptor. And the receptors are supposed to signal the cell to do something, like pull in the folate so it can do work. But it can't if there's a dairy antibody there, right? If, if I'm carrying two suitcases and you come up to me and say, hey, Ben, can you carry this 
this watermelon to the kitchen. I'm like, no, I, I'm, I'm full up. I got to get rid of the suitcases first. Okay. But if, you know, receptors are full up with their antibodies, which is very, very common, uh, or other antibodies, which can be high elevated from homocysteine. So homocysteine is another reason to, to cause folate receptor antibodies, which is no one's talking about. And, uh, so liposomes can be a huge game changer for people here. And folks with high homocysteine levels, I mean, for me, downtown Toronto, we get a lot of um, guys who are holding on to too much belly fat, a lot of systemic inflammation going on. Is that, uh, you know, a client type that would uh, potentially have that type of, uh, you know, need assistance with the homocysteine? Yes, for sure. And I, for people who are uh, who also not eating their leafy greens or eating an inflammatory-based diet, you know, I'm sure a standard American SAD diet is like a SCD, standard Canadian diet, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so an inflamed person who's struggling with chronic disease, um, they can have a, a tend to a higher homocysteine. But what's not talked about very often is a low homocysteine. And I just wrote an article, I think actually this week, uh, on drbenlynch.com about low homocysteine, which is uh, something that people don't think about. And so for me, a homocysteine lower than, I said six, maybe it's five. Uh, I just got a, a research paper from the library the other day um, to evaluate because I don't know the exact range, but I th I'm playing around five or six. So if your homocysteine, you know, micromoles uh, per liter, I believe, um, uh, if it's a, less than five or six, you're going to have issues. And you have issues because homocysteine is a building block. We think of homocysteine as bad, but it's not. Homocysteine, we need it. And we need homocysteine to help make our body's number one antioxidant called glutathione. And we need homocysteine to become methylated by methylfolate to become methionine to support our methylation. So if I just lost you with that, we need homocysteine to support our methylation, again, which supports your creatine, your cell membranes, your neurotransmitters, getting rid of your histamine and so on. And you need your glutathione to neutralize hydrogen peroxide and a lot of uh, free radicals in our body and, and chemicals like mercury as well, heavy metals. That's a really great insight because I know a lot of, uh, or seemingly a lot of docs just seem to be focused on the high homocysteine. So we'll definitely circle back and uh, put a link in the show notes to that article because I'm sure a lot of the docs listening in will want to will read more about that. Now, if I just circle back quickly to um, back to the methylfolate, you'd mentioned before people not having an effect in terms of you know the hair loss. Um, what's the impact of deficiencies of methylcobalamin with the effects of, of the folate as well? Mm, beautiful question. So there's a tag team. So if, if you want to, I'm not a dancer, so I, I'm trying to get out of that, but there's a certain, what's a common dancer? You need two people to dance. What is that? Tango? Tango, salsa, sounds good to me. There we go, salsa. So let's spice it up with salsa dancing. So you can't really salsa dance by yourself. So methylfolate is a salsa dancer, period. It, it cannot do its job without methylcobalamin. So you have methylfolate, you have methylcobalamin needed to methylate homocysteine. Okay, do you get all that? 100%. Yeah, so methylfolate plus methylcobalamin, they get together, and when they can salsa, they tear it up, you know, that homocysteine levels drop and they recycle and they get the job done and methylate gets supported. Now, if you are deficient in methylfolate, yet you have adequate methylcobalamin, 
what you will see on labs is you might still see an anemia. You might see a elevated MCV. You might see an elevated MCH. You might see someone who uh, has uh, exercise-induced asthma or is just not feeling very energetic. And then you'll get the lab. You'll also see high serum cobalamin. And their folate levels could be low if you order a serum folate. So you're like, wow, that's weird. How can I have a high B12 and a low folate? Well, because the methylcobalamin can't be used without adequate methylfolate. So you have to get the methylfolate levels up so the methylfolate, methylcobalamin can work. Make sense? They work in tandem. So if you're deficient in one, it's not going to work. And you're going to see uh, high levels of MCV, MCH on your labs, or you'll see a high serum folate or a high serum cobalamin. Now, what can also be confusing, and that's called methyl trapping. So methyl trapping because the methyl from the methyl cobalamin and the methyl from the methyl folate can't get used to bind to the homocysteine and, and convert it back to methionine. So it's yep. that methyl groups are trapped. So what you also may see is your you can see a high folate and a high B12 and yet the homocysteine levels are still high. And you're thinking, well, what the heck is going on here? So methylfolate, methylcobalamin, they intersect at a very, very important juncture called methionine synthase, which is a gene called MTR. And methionine synthase, this gene, its job is to take methylfolate and methylcobalamin and homocysteine to convert it into methionine. So it does a lot of things, but it's sensitive. And it's what it's doing is it's it's a re, it has a sensor built into it. It's a beautiful thing. So if someone has a lot of oxidative stress, what do you think is more important, supporting oxidative stress reduction or methylation? What do you think, Mark? I think uh, reducing oxidative stress would be a good place to start. No, right? Because if someone has a tremendous amount of oxidative stress, what's the point of making cell membranes? Because those cell membranes are just going to get all oxidized and damaged, right? It's going to be a vicious cycle. You'll never get out of it. So if if the methionine synthase has a built-in redox sensor and it senses the oxidative stress, then it's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to be supporting methylation right now. It's going to take that homocysteine and it's going to convert it to glutathione. And that glutathione will reduce the oxidative stress. Once the oxidative stress reduces... Then the methionine synthase starts sensing, oh, you know what? Oxidative stress isn't too bad right now. And now the homocysteine can go back up and support methylation. So it's it's like it's a train tracks where you can have, you know, maybe the train can go to St. Petersburg or Moscow. You know, and they're like you see in the movies where they, they just pull a lever and they flip the track and now the bad guy goes down the wrong way. Yeah. Right? Sure. So it's it's actually it's a, it's a really good switch right there. And so glutathione is a very, very important uh, compound to give very early in individuals who are struggling with chronic disease. And uh, I prefer the liposomal form. And so does the chief scientific officer of Doctors Data, uh, David Quigg. Um, he's seen good results. IV is also good. Um, but IV is expensive, uh, mm-hmm. requires visiting a doctor. It's, you know, it, you can't regulate it. You get a huge whopping dose and there you are. You can't just take a few drops, say once a day, once a week, a few times a week. So I like the liposomal 
Um, it's as effective as the IV, and you can regulate it, and it's way, way less expensive. Fantastic insights, and I love the uh, the analogies of sort of sensors and and whatnot, rather than this common uh, messages we get of the you know the good and the bad in terms of the body's actions. Now, if we shift over to super physiological doses, I mean, this is something that I see in clinical practice as well. Other practitioners prescribing, you know, eight thousand, fifteen thousand milligrams. Um, you know, what's going on here? Is this needed in certain scenarios? Is this you know, are we just treating the smoke? Can you can you shed some light? Yeah, um, awesome question. Thanks for asking. It is it's yeah, you are treating the smoke. Uh, if you know, and, and sometimes you have to do that. You know, sometimes you've you've got to get in there and, and rescue the person who is stuck in the smoke um, before you the fire's out, right? So you know, it's is you have to do that at times, especially people want to feel better. So. But you should know that if you're using very, very high doses of nutrients, you should be fully aware of that there is smoke in the building and it needs to be cleared out before you go in and just, well, bef- you know, just know that you got to clear it out and what's causing that smoke. Common issues, and we'll talk full eight here, is some doctors will say, look, you've got empty Jafar. And this is this happens across the board. They identify that an individual has an image of our SNP, either six seven seven or twelve ninety eight, or a combination of the both, and they'll immediately prescribe methylfolate. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it backfires. Let's just say it helps because we're talking about excessive physiological doses here. Let's say the patient takes eight hundred micrograms of methylfolate, and is like, Doc, you know, I felt I didn't really feel anything. So if a person isn't really feeling, you, you load them up again. Then you double it. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I got a little bit of a change, but not really. Then you give them five milligrams of methylfolate, and they're like, yeah, I'm starting to feel something. And then you give them 15. You get you, you bring out the big guns of, of Deplin, which comes in a 7.5 milligram or 15 milligram uh, prescriptive drug. Uh, it's pretty expensive. And they're like, wow, doc, I'm not depressed. I'm full of energy. This is like... I had no idea life was this good. Game changer. And they, yeah, it's a total game changer. And then they they go on and they live life amazing and and they they need it every single day. They need 15 milligrams every day. And so when you have 15, 15 milligrams of methylfolate running around your body, that's a lot. I mean, that's the RDA is 400 micrograms. So that's that's more than 30 times the RDA dose. That's very super physiological. Wow. So then you're thinking, okay, well, well, why is that? No, go back to what I talked about, uh, folate receptor antibodies. So if these individuals have high homocysteine for various reasons, say they're drinking alcohol like crazy or they're exercising really hard because exercising really hard will increase histamine and will increase the demand for glutathione um, increase the formation of creatine and increase the formation of, of phosphatidylcholine and all these things will, you know, kind of use up, but also produce create uh, homocysteine. So if they're, if they're doing a lot of work in their body, they're, you know, they're still overworking, they haven't changed their lifestyle, their diet, they're still not sleeping well. Um, you know, they're overtraining. So or, or eating bad food, that MGFR gene still has to work too hard and homocysteine is still getting screwed up. And now, and they're also consuming dairy and they have leaky gut. So now they have dairy antibodies circulating around. They have folate receptor antibodies. So then you have these two antibodies floating around their brain and 
the antibodies are binding to the receptors, blocking the methylfolate that's in there. So now it's it's kind of competitive inhibition. So if you can outcompete those folate antibodies, folate receptor antibodies, with a flood of methylfolate, and you get more methylfolate in the brain versus the folate receptor antibodies, now the folate's going to have a chance, right? Now it gets a chance to dock to the receptor and get in the cell. So that's how I look at it, where you know you've they've got all these antibodies, all these things are binding to the receptors. Or the receptors are few and far between for various reasons. Maybe their cell membranes aren't healthy. Maybe the receptors are downregulated and for various reasons. Maybe they have a lot of high lipid peroxidation and the cells are just damaged and the receptors aren't fully intact um, and healthy. So the methylfolate can't really bind very well. So if you just flood a whole bunch of it, there's more likelihood of it to binding. Makes sense? So it's kind of you want something to happen. It's like if you want to win the lottery, what do you do? You buy 100 tickets. You don't buy one for sure. So you know if there if methylfolate is trying to bind you know to the receptor and there's a lot of competition, then you know you need to outcompete it by taking more. So what you do is okay, you give them the super physiological doses, but then you work on the leaky gut, you work on lowering their homocysteine, you work on changing their lifestyle and the diet, and as you do that, mark my words. You're going to have to lower the dose of the methylfolate. If you don't, you're going to see that individual having insomnia, irritability, migraines, headaches, um, uh, muscle pain, joint pain, and so on. Yeah, another great uh, comment and insight. Yeah, for docs there, making sure that if they are getting that initial benefit, to, like you said, as soon as they get improvement, removing some of the other roadblocks and really titrating down that dose is, uh, is fantastic advice. Now, if we talk uh, genetic testing, I'd love to get your feedback here. There's sort of the good, the mediocre, the bad in terms of genetic testing. A common scenario uh, for me in clinic is someone gets their genetic test run, they come back with their report, and of course they have a list of anywhere from 5 to 15 different things to take to correct all these sort of problems. Can you um, shed some light on that first scenario? Is this uh, an effective solution for them or what's going on here? <laughs> you try to light me up, aren't you, Mark? <laughs> uh, so, uh, there's a lot of SNPs in the human body. I mean, SNPs have been, again, is going back to the beginning of this podcast. SNPs have benefits and they have, well, they've been selected for because there's a benefit. And so, MTFR not working very fast, there is a benefit. There at least there was in our ancestral population, and that was to fight malaria. Now we're not really in the malaria riddled areas anymore. So, and we're not really eating our leafy green vegetables or our liver anymore. So now MTFR has become a detriment to society for people who are not living uh, healthfully or in areas of malaria. So that that's, we have to understand that, but we have tons of SNPs in our human body. I mean, every one of us probably has about, I don't know, 40,000 to a million. That's a huge range. But we have a tremendous amount of genetic polymorphisms, every single one of us. So if you order a genetic report and you find out that you have an MTGFR SNP, you have a COMT SNP, a glutathione SNP, a norepinephrine SNP, a histamine SNP, and this report is telling you you need to take three supplements for MTGFR, two for COMT, two for histamine, now you're upwards of 10 supplements. And we've only talked about like five SNPs. Yep. <laughs> One is expensive. Two, it's nonsense. And three, it's a massive conflict of interest. So, and four, it's just 
I, I just pull my hair out. It, it just yeah, should exactly. not be done. And you know what we want, all of us want, is we want the magic bullet. We want that target. And we want to be able to pick up a bow and arrow, which none of us have shot before. And we want to hit that 100-yard target right in a bullseye. I mean, we all want that. But to pick up a bow and to shoot that arrow in high winds or even moderate winds and to get it just right in that bullseye takes practice. It takes a lot of work, and there's multiple variables there. You know, what type of arrow are you using? What's the tension of the bow? What's the wind? What's the, what's the arc? You know, how, how far away is it? All that has to be accounted for. So everything in life is multidimensional. And when there is a, a genetic report that says your patient has a SNP or you have a SNP, you need to take this supplement, that's a one-to-one linear relationship. And if the body was in a linear relationship, there would be no humans or life on this planet because all the pathogens, all the heavy metals that we're surrounded, faced with, all the chemicals that we're faced, faced with, these linear relationships would have been all blocked and blockaded and we would have, all of our genes would have been struggling and we would have been dead as a society. I mean, there'd be no humans left on this planet. There is a bunch of redundancy systems built in. There's a bunch of alternate pathways one gene will communicate to 200 like MTHFR. So even though MTHFR is one gene, it communicates to over 200 other ones indirectly. So by taking methylfolate, you're supporting the MTHFR gene, yes. But that scatters to 200 other genes. How in the hell do you know what's going to happen? You don't. By taking uh, vitamin B6 to support a slow CBS gene, yeah, vitamin B6 is needed as a cofactor for CBS gene, but it's also a cofactor for hundreds of other genes. Magnesium, yeah, you need that for COMT, but you're also supporting 400 other enzymes at the same time. So people think that, yeah, if I swallow this nutrient, I'm going to support my COMT. Yeah, that's true, but you're supporting many, many, many others, and you cannot treat a genetic report. You have to treat the patient because if that patient is retired, they're financially not worried at all, they are super happy, they have a fantastic community, they grow their own food, they go hunting in the wild, and they harvest their own meat, they're a picture of perfect health. And you order a genetic report, and they've got APOE4, they got MTHFR677 homozygous, they got plus, which is slowed. They have all these nasty genes, and, you know, that we think are nasty, and you're like, oh, my God, you need all these supplements. Well, you order labs on these people, they're perfect. They're absolutely perfect. But yet they have all these genetic polymorphisms. Well, no, they don't need any support. They're perfect. Leave them alone. They don't need any supplementation. So you have to treat the patient. You have to understand the patient's lifestyle, their mindset, their environment, their work, what they're exposed to, the environment that they're in, their hobbies. You have to take all that into account and their labs and the genetic report in order to determine what supplements to give. That's how it's done properly. So all these reports, if, if there's a genetic report that recommends supplementation, you put it in the trash. If there's a genetic report that says these nutrients support these genes, like vitamin B2 is the cofactor, or vitamin B6 is the cofactor, that's the report you want. So, And they might recommend labs. They might recommend various lifestyle changes. That's okay. But anytime they're recommending supplements, garbage. Yeah, it's great, uh, great comments. And 
really get into that understanding of, of, of what the genetic test is telling you about yourself and your clinical picture uh, is phenomenal. And, you know, if we shift gears a little bit onto the athletic side of things, there's obviously more and more testing now, uh, whether it's nutrigenomic testing or testing um, to kind of predict athletic reactions to training, et cetera. Just curious your thoughts on any of, does that fall into a similar category? Are there certain applications to perhaps parts of those tests? So for genetic tests for fitness and yeah, exercise? Yeah, fitness and athletes and whatnot. Yeah, you know, there's there are. And, uh, you know, Craig Pickering, uh, he's out of UK, I believe. And I was supposed to interview him last week, but I my other interview prior went long. So I, I really wanted to wrap his brain around this because he's, he's very knowledgeable, one, in fitness and two, genetics. So you want to bring him on the show sometime. Great. Um, Craig Pickering. And uh, I think he worked for DNA Fit. Um, and so DNA Fit is, I believe, a pretty reputable company. Alessandro Freddi uh, was telling me about them, too. And anything that comes out of Alessandro's mouth, I, I pretty much trust. Um, so he's another great uh, person to, to chat with. He's phenomenal with sleep and, and training as well. He's like a double black belt, um, very fit guy. Um, so in terms of fitness, though, I will say that, you know, I'm not an elite athlete anymore. I was in college um, and I, I want to be. I mean, we all want to be now, right? So I'm a, I'm a weekend warrior wannabe um, elite athlete. But I will say that if you are training and you get red in the face, train, you know, training and it just doesn't go away, it stays mm -hmm. 20 minutes or an hour after exercise. Uh, or you get difficulty breathing and you just, you know, you, you're just noticing that you got to work with your breath harder and harder and you're just kind of struggling for more air or you get exercise induced asthma. Um, these are all things that have to do with methylation. Um, another one would be post-workout soreness. So if you're exercising, you know, post-workout soreness is, is okay. You know, having some is, is normal. Now, if, especially if you haven't worked out in a long time, but if, if you're working out, and you're lifting weights, and I'll get back to the methylation here in a second, is if you're working out and lifting weights at post-workout soreness, it should be gone within, you know, a few hours to a day tops. Now, my wife, she has a lot of genetic polymorphisms in that SOD2 gene that I was telling you about, that superoxide dismutase. Mm -hmm. So when she would go work out, she would flare. And she loves hiking. She loves yoga. But it would take her full on a week to a week and a half to be able to go work out again. And sometimes she would just say, screw it and want to go anyway. But then she would get progressively worse and worse and worse. And she'd have to rein it in. And she didn't want to. What happened is when you exercise, you're producing a bunch of reactive oxygen species and you deplete your uh, glutathione and you deplete your superoxide uh, dismutase. So supplementing with something like PQ, PQQ, which is an amazing antioxidant, uh, it's life is like 20,000 cycles. It's, it's, you know, vitamin E, I think is like four or five vitamin C is I think one. So vitamin C will neutralize uh, a free radical and it has one life. It's done. PQQ can neutralize 20,000 things before it's done. So it's phenomenal. Liposomal glutathione is also phenomenal. So if you have post-workout soreness or exercise induced asthma, you need to be considering liposomal glutathione and PQQ, hands down, 100%. It's a great comment. Now, we had, uh, had Dr. Tamsin Lewis on from the UK, and she's a 
ex um, Ironman, Iron Woman UK champion, and she's uh, mentioned that as well. So great, great insight there. Yeah, I'll let you keep going there, Ben. Sorry to interrupt. Perfect. No, no, it's great to have a confirmation on that. Thank you. Um, and then you've got red in the face or exercise-induced asthma or just difficulty breathing as you're training or excessive sweating. So if you're one of those guys playing basketball and everybody, nobody wants to guard you because you're, you're that guy or that girl who's just you know a, a wet mop going great, up and down the court. Great way to score some free points. Yeah, right. Especially when you go for the for the down the lane and lift your knee up, was like I used to do. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, you if you excessive sweating, red in the face, difficulty breathing, or exercise induced asthma, that's high histamine, and it's also excessive adenosine. So as your ATP, we'll we'll hit adenosine first. ATP, adenosine triphosphate. As you burn it, you know that phosphate becomes free and it gives you fuel. And you actually, you need water for that, by the way. So if you're dehydrating, you're exercising, you're not going to be forming as well. You need water to free the phosphate from ATP. It's, it's again, it's a dual system. So if you're dehydrated and exercising, your performance is going to suck. So you have to be hydrated. Electrolytes are your friend. Um, good ones and pure water. Now, ATP, when it's used, becomes adenosine diphosphate. And when adenosine diphosphate gets broken down, it becomes adenosine monophosphate. And now it's starting to get pretty hard by the body to convert that ADP, AMP back into ATP. And now that AMP becomes adenosine. And now you just got adenosine sticking around. And adenosine levels, the higher adenosine levels, the higher histamine we'll get. And histamine is a great vasodilator. That's what we have it. So you, when you're exercising, you want to vasodilate because you're trying to deliver oxygen to the cells, right? It's, it's a response mm-hmm. by the body. So, but what's happening is that adenosine levels are accumulating because your mitochondria are struggling. And your mitochondria are struggling because now your hydrogen peroxide levels are too high and your mitochondria are uncoupling. And you recouple your mitochondria by PQQ and liposomal glutathione. And you also couple them by uh, having sufficient electrolytes and also keeping a alkaline environment because training and exercise is very acidic. So you have to try to keep alkaline when you're doing it. So that's also another reason. So you could consider bicarbonates. Uh, Your electrolytes could be bicarbonate based. Um, Now, that's for for that. So, And then ribose is a building block for ATP. And I'm a huge fan of ribose. Yeah, I can lower blood sugar a bit. Um, How that does it, I don't know the mechanism of action. Um, maybe because it helps fuel ATP and you're burning more glucose. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so ribose is very, very useful. I actually added ribose in my electrolytes. So the electrolytes I formulate, I've got ribose. <clears throat> I've got niacin to help keep the NADH, NAD ratio happy. I've got taurine because taurine is essential to uh, balance magnesium uh, and potassium into the cell because without taurine, your electrolytes don't really work. Taurine is a very, very important osmotic uh, regulator that nobody talks about. Um, you usually don't see that. We have huge amounts of potassium um, because potassium is extremely important. Most people are already sufficient in uh, sodium. And so you got to have sufficient electrolytes to help that coupling too. Now, to target directly with the histamine, so you can you hit the histamine indirectly by supporting with PQQ, liposomal, glutathione, and electrolytes. Now, if the histamine is still high, 
then you, that's where you, the methylfolate and the methylcobalamin come into play. Because histamine, intracellular histamine, which is what you get when you're exercising, increases. And in order to reduce that, it requires a gene called histamine and methyltransferase. And that gene runs with SAMe. And SAMe is made from protein, magnesium, methylfolate, methylcobalamin. So, and you can break that histamine down by usually taking methylcobalamin and methylfolate uh, just prior to exercise. And that that is a really good um, way to support your genes. I almost said hack, but it's not a hack. <laughs> it's just sure. a, I, I don't believe in hacking. <laughs> Learning how genes work. So, uh, there's a lot of information there. Absolutely. I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal insights here, Ben. And, uh, you know, I want to really respect your time. And so, for the last question here, um, on the personal side of things, you're obviously a really busy guy. How do you start your day? What's your daily routine like? My daily routine is I wake when I'm rested. I don't have an alarm clock. Uh, I wake very well when it's light outside. And if it's five in the morning and I'm awake, I'll get up. If it's eight in the morning and I'm awake, I'll get up. Uh, I rarely am up after eight. Uh, eight is kind of my latest and seven thirty is kind of usual, my usual. Um, and then I was, I've been working on my changing my day, but now I have a really good app called Optimize. Um, Optimize.me is the website. It's Brian Johnson stuff. And so he had, what, what got me is like you're, the word creative and reactive, the only difference is how the R's and C's are located in the word. So your creativity is most uh, in the morning. So that's when you get your work done. So if you check your phone, that's not ideal because now you're reacting to things instead of creating. So I'm starting my day tapping into the app of Brian Johnson, Optimize Me, and uh, no affiliation whatsoever. I just respect this guy's work immensely. And uh, I hear what he has to say. He has these one little tips called plus ones. And so I, I, I think about what he has to say, think about how I can apply it to my life to increase my productivity and uh, my enjoyment in life, and then I try to apply that throughout my day. Then I get up and uh, say hi to my kids, and I evaluate how I'm feeling. If I feel that my head is full, um, I will go straight uh, full in terms of like heavy and not clear, and my vision's kind of not crisp. Mm-hmm. I'll go take a shot of liposomal vitamin C and, and glutathione, and most mornings I will do that along with uh, a scoop of electrolytes uh, with filtered water. And that's pretty much my breakfast. Uh, and I won't eat until I'm hungry. Um, and if I struggle with hunger, I'll take an acetyl L carnitine, um, in the morning to help burn fat. Uh, well to, to actually, you know, to I'd be able to support those pathways and maybe mm-hmm. take some niacin too. And I did that today, actually. Um, I took that exact same thing. I took glutathione, electrolytes, vitamin C, had no breakfast. I took a carnitine and I did not eat until right before I got on your podcast. (laughs) So uh, my blood sugar dropped a little bit, which is why I was a little bit slow, uh, probably the first five minutes. But my wife brought me an amazing smoothie with a bunch of uh, great berries and and nutrition uh, in it. And then uh, after about 10 minutes, I got my blood sugar back up and I was actually starting to think again. So sorry for that. Fantastic (laughs) insights there. I mean, just the reactive nature as well is so true today in a fast paced world where we're all just so reactive right off the jump. So 
Um, phenomenal stuff, Ben. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, where can people keep up with your phenomenal work? Where can people pick up uh, your fantastic book, Dirty Jeans, and stay connected with you on social media? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So Dr. Ben Lynch, drbenlynch.com is my website, and I've got articles there. I'm trying now to write once a week. Typically on Mondays, I'll, that's my creative time. I'll get on my laptop and open it up from the weekend's rest, and I'll write a great article. Hopefully it's great. Um, so drbenlynch.com. My Facebook is very active. In fact, I had about 150 trolls on there yesterday giving me one-star reviews. So <laughs> <laughs> that was that was pretty cool. We neutralized them with about 500 positive reviews from my fans. I don't even know where we are right now. Fantastic. I, yeah. So And then the book Dirty Jeans is coming out January 30th. And uh, it's published by Harper One. I'm very, very excited about it because you don't need expensive labs. You don't need genetic testing. It gives you how genes work, why we have them, the benefits and the, and the, the potential harms that one can get from these SNPs is all discussed. There's quizzes built in. There's recipes. But I don't have any menus because menus, it depends on how you are, where you are, where you're living. So I tell you how to eat. You know, I give you the tools with that. And... And then you adapt the recipes based upon that. So it's it's one of the it's book that's never been written before, and uh, I'm very excited about it because it's a book that people can use their entire life, and it will always work. And it's not a it's not a get healthy scheme. It's not a 30 day program. It's a it's a lifestyle, and uh, it's what I've been practicing for years with patients, clients, and myself and my family. Um, and teaching other doctors, and it's it's got a very very proven track record. So I'm excited for it. Phenomenal stuff, Ben. Well, I know a lot of people even listening to this will definitely be checking out your website to dig a little bit deeper. And of course, the book will be a great uh, deep dive into everything. So thanks again for being on the show. We'll include um, all those links in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs, and you can use the hashtag drbubspp. Fantastic. If you enjoyed the show, head over to iTunes, subscribe, give us your rating, and of course, thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.